Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com In 2002, my wife and I started the Legends of the Outdoors Hall of Fame, which is a Hall of Fame for people of all walks of the outdoors industry of hunting and fishing. We have started a television show to go along with that Hall of Fame. And the really unique thing about our show is we don't have to have a huge catch or a huge kill to have a great show. We're really not chasing games so much as we are chasing the people that we want to interview and, and have fun in the outdoors with. Since 1936, the National Wildlife Federation has worked with hunters and anglers to pass the most important conservation laws of American history and to protect our sporting traditions. This podcast explores our history, our values, and the work we do to safeguard the fish and wildlife that fuel our passions. We are NWF Outdoors. Howdy, everybody. This is the NWF Outdoors podcast. This is Aaron Kindle, and I'm here with my co-host, the famous Bill Cooksey. How's it going today, buddy? It's going great, man. We had a good hard frost this morning. It's just a beautiful day in this part of the country. <laughs> Excellent. Well, this is Bill's second podcast that he's co-hosting. I think we're already improving, getting better, doing things better. We're having we're having fun. So thanks for being here, Bill. And today we have uh, our, our guest is Gary Mason. How's it going today, Gary? Oh man, I'm doing great, Aaron. Bill, how you doing? We're doing good. We appreciate you coming. I'm going to let Bill uh, introduce you here, but uh, thanks for being here, Gary. Oh man, glad to do it. Yeah, Aaron. Um, you know, I was excited uh, to for for my first proposed guest, uh, Gary Mason. He's been a friend of mine for a long time, but he's you know pretty much an icon around the the outdoor world in this part of the country and really nationwide. Um, but it, it's interesting, a plant closing in 91 inspired Gary to depart from being a part-time fishing and hunting guide, and he became a full-time guide in numerous states for waterfowl, upland game, crappie, uh, bass, brim. And in our, our part of the world, brim means bluegill. Uh, shell crackers, pumpkin seeds, and all that sort of thing. It's a catch-all. Um, in 2006, he became the executive director of Northwest Tennessee Tourism. And then in 2009, he started the first collegiate scholarship program for bass fishing in the entire country at Bethel University. So since then, you know, they've been seven times, uh, they've been in the top seven programs in the country uh, every year and ranked number one twice. So, but it's a Tennessee tourism where Gary's really had to deal with some of the conservation issues in a big way 
for this region, and that's namely the invasive carp and cormorant populations that are wreaking havoc in certain ecosystems. I love this, I should just say, because Gary, Bill and I talk, you know, he's he's from Tennessee, gets the southeastern flair. I'm out here in Colorado, and we get this opportunity to kind of see each other's corner of the world, and I learn a lot of new stuff, and I can't wait for this one because these are all things that I'm not too knowledgeable about, um, and, and you're like a, a guru here, an expert, and so I, I can't wait to get into this. Well, you know, I don't know how much of a guru or expert I am, but I, I know what I see when I see something's wrong. I, I don't mind saying, hey, that's wrong, and we need to be making some changes as as humans living on this planet. Uh, we have done things that, uh, and allowed other people to do things that that has devastated ecosystems and uh, and changed the, the world that we live in. So, yeah, I'm, I was tickled that Bill asked me to be on here. Hey, before we get too heavy, let's talk about what's going on outdoors. Gary, what have you been doing lately outdoors? Well, one thing that uh, that you didn't mention, and I wear many hats in the outdoors and have for many time, many years, but in 2002, my wife and I started the Legends of the Outdoors Hall of Fame, which is a Hall of Fame for people of all walks of the outdoors industry of hunting and fishing. And this is going to be our 20th induction ceremony coming up in 2022. And, you know, we didn't get to have it one year for COVID, but but we have started uh, a television show to go along with that Hall of Fame called the Legends of the Outdoors TV. And my host is Abby Joe Sheringer, and Abby Joe is David Hale's granddaughter of Night and Hale Game Calls. And so we've been feverishly filming shows ever since October uh, to try to get enough to have 26 shows this upcoming year. And uh, we'll be on the Pursuit Channel, on the Hunt Channel. We're going to be on My Outdoor TV, Mossy Oak Go. Uh, we're going to be on Roku, uh, Amazon Prime, and the Android and and YouTube apps for iPhone and several other internet platforms. So pretty much going to paste this thing all over the place and and highlight the life and times of the Legends Outdoors Hall of Fame members while we're hunting and fishing. And the really unique thing about our show is we don't have to have a huge catch or a huge kill to have a great show. We're really not chasing games so much as we are chasing the people that we want to interview and, and have fun in the outdoors with. Guys like Bill Cooksey, for example. <laughs> well, I mean, that's good stuff. Heck, I was just wanting to know if you'd actually been out and shot a duck yet. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it sounds I like you have. have. Yeah, I actually have. And, and uh, we've had a couple of really good shoots already. Our season in Tennessee, as you know, has just, just started up, just cranking up for our second segment. So uh, I was just over in the bottom here by my house, close to Big Sandy, and, and uh, watching the ducks out in front of the blind that we drew this year on the WMA. How about you, Aaron? What have you been doing? Yeah, thanks, Bill. Uh, <clears throat> I think we talked last time. Uh, we, we were going to go do a little cast and blast on our local river. And my boy likes the blasting more than the casting. And so he, he ended up saying, well, you know, if you bring the fly rod and you're trying to fish the whole time, we're not going to do any good duck hunting. And so he talked me out of the, talked me out of the fishing rod, but I did, we did get into some mallards and, and got a nice float over the Thanksgiving holiday. And, we went and got our Christmas tree and we looked for some grouse and squirrels and such. But of course, when we're elk hunting, we can't see enough grouse and squirrels hollering at us and telling us, telling the elk we're in there. But when we were out that day, we didn't see any squirrels, but uh, we did get some mallards and had some fun and got out and got a Christmas tree. So 
it was a good Thanksgiving holiday and looking forward to some more, including coming to your neck of the woods and seeing you here, here soon into the week. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. And, uh, this may be the only time it happens, but I think you're ahead of me on ducks. It sounds like because I have hunted one day, and that oh was man, in, really? Yeah, that's a lifetime <laughs> achievement award for me. I, I don't think that'll ever happen again. <laughs> I I got a day of hunting in in Louisiana, you know, right before Thanksgiving with a bunch of legislators. We were taken out and talking about uh, the marsh, and then I spent the rest of Thanksgiving week in Stuttgart judging the world championships. I've been deer hunting a few times, but it's still so dry here that it's my place is bone dry, and uh, a lot of folks that do have water have already kind of pushed the ducks out. That's cool, Bill. And tell me, because I, I don't do a lot of duck hunting, and there's not as nearly as many ducks out here, but I think it's kind of weird. Every year we have this month gap, so we, our duck season opens early like late october goes into about thanksgiving weekend and then now we're, we don't have a season and it opens back up around christmas and then goes into february is that something you see normally too uh, a gap of that long is you know we'd call it a split and that that's a big one um because with only 60 days to work with but you're are you in the pacific flyway uh, yeah, center. Well, so, I don't know. It's the, the Rockies, or, or, and we're like on the east of the divide, but right next to the divide. I'd, so. I'd, actually, I'd have to yeah. look at the map to see how yeah, it actually too. lays out. You're kind of in one of those tweener areas, but you potentially have a lot longer season than us. Y'all probably get some birds early compared to us, and then they give you a good gap to let new ducks start coming down from the north. So yeah. um, here, if we open the duck season any earlier than we do, we really wouldn't have water and we wouldn't have many birds. Hmm. Well, we'll get more to that when we get together. You can, you can school me up on those things. We'll jump back over to Gary. Gary, you know, we wanted to ask you a little bit too, you know, not a lot of people go to school thinking, you know, like maybe we can, maybe we can find a career. I mean, there's some wildlife biologists, other few people or a lot of people would like to think they could go find a way to stay outside uh, in their life. Uh, but most people go and then they end up, you know, sitting behind the computer a lot and those kind of things. Uh, but we're always interested in the path for those who made it to the outdoors and stayed in the outdoors. And yours was maybe a little of the opposite. As Bill said, you know, you had this plant close and then that led you to this outdoors career. So, you know, tell us how that happened and, and how that might guide others to just follow their path. Well, absolutely. You know, first and foremost, the Lord has really blessed me. He blessed me first with a beautiful wife that, that uh, seen the vision and understood, you know, what I love doing. Uh, when we got married at 18 years old, right out of high school, we were high school sweethearts. And then, as Bill said, I worked at a factory making kitty litter, actually. Uh, I was a guy that put the little blue dots on the kitty litter bag if, you, if you've got cats and you use kitty litter. But, uh, but I worked for 16 and a half years and guided part-time as a waterfowl guide and, and fishing guide. I'd got on the weekends and take vacation during duck season. And, and uh, you know, I tell people that my wife used to lay in bed and cry when I was getting up and leaving her and going duck hunting. And then after I started guiding and making money at it, if I didn't get up and leave and go duck hunting, she'd lay in bed and cry. So we've come full circle. <laughs> uh, but my career really has been uh, just absolutely wonderful. I've met some of the most great people in our industry and and i've got to share a lot of time with folks that everyone else just wants to uh you know get their autograph and maybe get five minutes with them and uh just just last week for instance i was i had lunch with harold knight and david hale earl bentz tommy aiken 
Joella Bates and Brenda Valentine. I mean, and uh, and we did some filming and all sat around and told stories about one another. And we've all known each other, you know, for the biggest part of our lives. And and uh, most people don't get to do that. So I'm, I'm the blessed one that gets to do that. But I started my career really quite innocently because I didn't go to college. I didn't have a college background. I uh, uh, got out of high school and went straight into a job trying to make a living for my family. And then when they closed the doors of our plant, I know it was tough on everyone else, but it was an opportunity for me. And I told my wife, I said, she said, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to go back to school? Are you going to, you know, you're going to go vocational school or whatever? And I said, no, I'm going hunting and fishing. And uh, that's what I did. I started going up to South Dakota and guiding duck, goose, and pheasant hunters. I was a Labrador retriever trainer, and I learned to give shooting lessons, uh, sporting clays lessons. And I've tried to put together as much stuff as I possibly could to to give my customers the benefit of being able to learn from me so when they didn't have me with them, they would be better outdoorsmen, better shots, better hunters, better fishermen. And I think a really good guy that that's what he brings to the table is is teaching others what to do when they're not with him. You know, when when I'm with Bill Cooksey, I know I don't have to call a duck because I got Bill Cooksey with me, you know. But when Bill's not with me, hopefully I can pick up some tips from him and uh, and and utilize those when Bill's not with me. And it's the same way with any really good guide. And so I've tried to learn as much as I possibly could over the years, and I'm still learning. You know, I, uh, every duck that I call at is a different duck. Every deer that I see is a different deer. Uh, I had a guy one time ask me if I'd seen any new ducks. And I said, yeah, I've started seeing a bunch of new ducks. You know, uh, he said, well, those you're seeing are not new ducks. I said, well, they're new to me you know, cause I, I don't think I've seen them yet, but, uh, one thing that I believe in is I believe you got to go against the grain. You know, you can't listen to the doc talk. You can't listen, uh, to the talk at the sporting goods store on what everything done yesterday, because tomorrow when you get to go hunting or you get to go fishing is a brand new day, brand new fish, brand new ducks, brand new everything. And, you know, my wife used to clerk at a bait and tackle store, and I learned one thing from all those old guys sitting in there drinking coffee. The fish are always biting at the bait store. You know, everybody's always got a story. So, um, <laughs> but like I said, you know, uh, you got to get out there and do it yourself. You, you can't sit at the bait and tackle store and listen to all the talk about how someone killed a big buck last week or how they uh, got a limited ducks last week. You got to get out there tomorrow and do it yourself. Try to learn as much as you possibly can from all those guys because they certainly have uh, a huge uh, bag of tricks or they wouldn't be successful. But don't just use what they teach you. Use what you can learn yourself, and, and you'll be a lot better outdoorsman. Both my boys are way better hunters and fishermen than I am. They learned what little I knew, and then they got out and applied that and learned a lot more than I had learned, and, and now I'm learning from them, you know, so – a lot of things that people can learn out there, and I learned to be a good outdoorsman uh, and learn to give uh, my clients something they carry back home with them each and every time they came with me. Well, and Gary, I've noticed that, that over the years you tend to stay, and this is a hard thing to do, um, on kind of the cutting edge of new techniques, especially in fishing, and then products in hunting. I mean, the, one of the first times we really talked was at a old sporting goods store in Paris, Tennessee, and you'd just come back from South Dakota. Um, and it was an in-store promotion that was going on. I was there selling duck calls and you had a docking dead foul trainer. 
that I yep. think at the time retailed for about $20. Right. And uh, I said, that will never go over. Well, it, it went over. Uh, you know, less than 10 years later, I found myself trying to redesign the same type of item for Avery's. <laughs> right. You know, Talk I'm about at- that. How do you, how do you actually stay that in touch with what's going on? Well, I think the first thing is, is I've always been able to grasp te- technology. You know, uh, so many people, especially when they get to be my age, uh, you know, and they've been hunting and fishing for so long, they get into this doldrum of, of, of not learning, you know, wanting to do the same old thing all the time. And if it's successful, that's great. Not going to run down any techniques or anything that anyone has uh, for their particular uh, outdoor sport. But uh, there's a lot of new things out there. I just went to Lake Arca Butler and fished with a guy named uh, Les Smith. And Les is trolling for huge crappie with 8-ounce weights, two jigs underneath them 8-ounce weights, trolling at 1.7, 1.8 miles an hour. And we caught the mess out of crappie eight nine poles out at one time 18 foot b&m poles i would have never thought to have done that but i promise you that uh there's going to be a trip on kentucky lake made where this old boy's got eight or nine poles out and eight foot eight eight ounce weights so but i've always been able to grasp technology and i think that that's that's the way that you learn uh from others and then you take those techniques and apply them for your own benefit wherever you're going to go uh that's something that I've always believed in. I've also always believed that someone else had something for me to learn. If I watched, you know, Bill Cooksey or Steve McAdams or uh, Tommy Aiken or Harold Knight or whatever, whoever it might be, uh, each one of them have something to teach me, even though they might not be knowing that I was trying to learn from them. You know, one of the guys that I learned a lot from was a guy named John Woolley. John was a 1991 Beretta World Champion sporting clay shooter from England. John and I got to be friends. He loved to fish, and I loved to shoot. And uh, so I would go over and and watch John give lessons to people. And I told him one time, I said, I don't want to give lessons, you know, to sporting clays people. I want to be able to help my shooters that's coming to South Dakota with me that's going to upland game hunt or my duck hunting shooters. I want to be able to help those guys be better shots. First time I shot sporting clays with John, he shot a 98 out of 100, and I shot 36. I knew something had to change, and I did. I changed to John's way of shooting and and become a better shot because of it. I'm still going to miss a duck every once in a while, Bill, so don't worry about uh, you know whether or not there's one left because <laughs> there will be. But uh, but you just got to continue to learn. You got to embrace technology. Uh, I use these kids that's on my bass team at Bethel uh, over and over again because these kids know these depth finders. They are born with a computer in their hand. They know everything to do with these depth finders. And I've had to learn the hard way how to utilize them. Still can't uh, do very good at it. But technology's out there. Embrace it. Absolutely. Uh, and in that fishing world, you know, for crappie and bass, it's become a, a game changer and a, almost a requirement to be successful. But, you know, earlier, Gary, we started, you started on the Legends of the Outdoors Hall of Fame. And I, let's talk about that for a little bit, because, you know, um, I remember when you first started the program and I thought, well, that's interesting. And I wonder how it's going to go. And I know, you know, I went, you know, to several events. My dad went every year until he passed away. And uh, um, it's really become uh, the way it's grown is, is really been neat to watch. But, you know, kind of 
you talked a little bit about where that came from, but take us through the whole process and the growth of it and, you know, where you get your inductees and that sort of thing. Well, you know, it really happened quite honestly. Uh, it, it was another God thing. Everything that I've done, I tell people that God's given me these ideas that I wasn't a smart enough old country boy to think of all this on my own, like, you know, giving scholarships to kids on a fishing team or creating uh, one of the nation's largest Hall of Fames. Uh, all that was through the good Lord up above and, and him trusting in me to be able to carry through. Uh, a lot of other people would have give up on a lot of this stuff, you know, long before I did. I guess I'm just too hard headed. But one day I was on the computer and we had old slow dial up Internet and I carried a lot of country music Hall of Fame members and baseball Hall of Fame, football Hall of Fame members hunting and fishing over the years. And I got to looking for a Hall of Fame in the outdoors industry because I had come up through the industry with folks like. Harold Knight and Roland Martin and and uh, spent some time with Bill Dance, who I know is a friend of yours, Bill, and and uh, you know Brenda Valentine. And I grew up together and at Buckhannon, Tennessee, and Steve McAdams, and so it was just so many well-known outdoors people that I had shared a lot of time with, and I couldn't find a Hall of Fame, you know, for guys like that. Uh, and I mean, there was the Pope and Young and Boone and Crockett and Freshwater Fishing Hall of Fame and, and the Professional Bass Fishing Hall of Fame was formed about the same time, maybe a year earlier. But there just wasn't anything out there for the whole of the outdoors industry of hunting and fishing. I looked at my wife and I said, you know, there's not a Hall of Fame for people that hunt and fish. And she said, I said, somebody ought to do something about that kind of begrudgingly. And she looked at me in her innocent eyes and said, well, aren't you somebody? In other words, you know, get off the couch and go do something or don't bother me with it, you know. And the next day I told her, we sat at a restaurant and I said, well, honey, we're going to start the Legends of the Outdoors Hall of Fame. She asked me what it was and I said, I'm not really sure yet, but I know that it's going to be something that we're going to have a good time doing. We're going to induct people from all walks of the outdoors industry and not just the ones in front of the camera, you know, people from behind the scenes and people that's made a huge impact on someone in the outdoors industry. And, you know, I think the definition of a legend is someone that others look up to. You know, we got folks in our industry, Bill, that uh, that may or may not ever uh, be someone that someone looks up to just because of their attitude or, you know, they're not really willing to help others. But, you know, our industry has been built on people helping one another. I think of, of Tommy Aiken, who I know you know very, very well, when I approached Tommy about inducting him into the Legends of the Outdoors Hall of Fame. He looked at me and he said, why would I be inducted into the Legends of the Outdoors Hall of Fame? He said, uh, "He said I, nobody knows who I am. And I said, uh, Tommy, these folks may not know who you are yet, but I said, you're the guy that's created a bunch of these Hall of Fame members. So Cindy and I was sitting in a restaurant the next day, and I said, honey, we're going to start the Legends of the Outdoors Hall of Fame. And she asked me what that was, and I said, well, it's going to be a Hall of Fame for people in all walks of the outdoors industry of hunting and fishing. And I said, we're going to induct, you know, five, six, seven, eight people every year and uh, try to get as many great deserving people into the Hall of Fame as possible each year. And then we're going to come up with some other awards for very deserving folks and uh, this will be our 20th year upcoming in 2022 of inducting people. We uh, missed out on the COVID year, as everyone else did, but uh, we've got over 140 Hall of Fame members, including the posthumous ones, and have made many awards to some really, really great people in our industry. And here's the neat thing. You know, my definition 
in my mind, of a legend is someone that helps others in their quest to be a better outdoorsman. You know, to me, Bill Cooksey's a legend. I mean, uh, he's won state and, and regional duck calling contest and and uh, has been an icon for Avery and other companies. Uh, and now the things that he's doing, I mean, Bill's one of the one of the true legends of our region. And and you I see why that. I wanted to have you on now, Gary, because you were going to yeah, well, he prep you for me, this. He me Twenty bucks he owes me later, right? But uh, but I'm I just still what, what did he pay you for this? What did he give you? Uh, well, it's, it's it's twenty bucks, so you know I'm I'm pretty cheap. <laughs> I just want to, I just want enough money to go to McDonald's, you know. But uh, but no, I mean there, there's the the sad part about the Hall of Fame, if there is a sad part, is that that we won't reach everyone that deserves to be in there before they go on to their great reward, and and in which case, once they get to heaven, they don't need any accolades that we can give them down here. But uh, we still uh, we still want to promote them. I mean, I think of I think of guys like Fred Bear, you know, that done so much. Uh, in the industry and Mr. Harold Ansley and, and so many more that come before us that uh, some of them didn't get in the hall of fame before they went on, but we inducted them posthumously. Uh, but they deserve so much recognition. And here's the thing. Our tagline is follow the footsteps or following the footsteps. And we're all following someone's footsteps. There was someone else that opened the door for me to go do what I do. And without that person or those people opening those doors, for all of us, we would be less. I think of our buddy Wade Bourne. I mean, Wade opened so many doors for so many people, you know, and and I was one of them. Uh, without Wade, I couldn't be sitting here doing what I'm doing right now. Uh, those people have to believe in you. They have to believe in people they don't even know. And they go to work each and every day just happy to help others. And that's, in my mind, that's a legend, you know, uh, if a guy, if a guy doesn't help anybody else in his quest to get better, what good is he to anyone? You know, if I don't go out each and every day trying to help others uh, in my quest to get better, then I've done them no good and I've done myself no good. But a true legend, a true person that goes out and helps others, and and every day tries to lift someone up to to whatever level he's at, that's my idea of a legend. That's my idea of a guy that or gal that would deserve to be into the hall of fame and be a hall of fame member. And Gary, one of the things I appreciate about the hall of fame, and it really hit me when you inducted Tommy Aiken. Um, Tommy's a man that regionally, he was well known, especially within the industry and nationally within the industry, but he's not a, you know, a household name in the outdoor world yet. Uh, during that induction, when, you know, uh, uh, Larry Nixon and, and, uh, Hank Parker and all these other famous fishermen are standing up there. That man's the reason people know my name. And, and yeah. so you, you induct a lot of stars to the public, but you know, you also are inducting people, as you said, who made a huge difference. Yeah. You know, one of the guys that we inducted several years ago and was Mr. Ralph Kohler. Mr. Ralph was from Nebraska and he was regionally known. Uh, we mentioned Wade Bourne a while ago. Wade had been up and hunted with Mr. Ralph and, and Ralph kept such immaculate records that the Department of DNR and Nebraska utilized his records to help set seasons and guidelines for the upcoming years, uh, Ralph started guiding at 16 years old waterfowl hunting bill with a wagon and a mule and live duck and goose decoys. Uh, and him and his wife traveled all over the country 
as uh, all American trap and skeet shooter or trap shooters. And ironically, his wife just passed away this week at 102, Mr. Rouse, 103. They were the oldest married couple in the United States, the fourth oldest couple in America, or I mean in the world. And these guys were icons in the outdoors industry, regionally speaking. They were like Tommy. They were known all over the country, you know, in the shooting industry. What really got me, though, when I got to digging into Rouse's story was him and his wife, Miss Dorothy, was also professional ballroom dancers. And I asked Ralph, I said, how did you become a professional ballroom dancer from being a hunting and fishing guide? He said, well, she told me she'd let me hunt all during the waterfowl season if I'd take her to do something when it wasn't waterfowl season. So during the off season, we danced. And uh, what a great story. And there's so many <laughs> great stories out there. Uh, I'm just the fortunate one that gets to help tell that story each and every year. And uh, like I said, God has truly, truly blessed me and continues to do it every every day. Well, Gary, we like stories. That's why we're talking to a guy like you, right? Um, <laughs> well, I, I've got... I, I envy you. I mean, uh, did, maybe not envy, but I'm, I'm just in awe because I think that uh, that's cool how many people you get to come across and all these people. You, you know, the good part for you, too, is you induct them and then you get to hang out with them because they come and, and you get some more time with them and you get their best stories because, you know, when you get inducted to something like that, you want to tell some pretty good stories. So yeah, you know, I can't the... imagine all the ones you have. Well, thank you. We you know one of the coolest stories that I've got to share with two people because uh, only two people were a part of this. Uh, and I'm about to tell it to y'all. Billy Westmoreland was a great friend of mine and Billy come over and, and do TV shows with me. And <clears throat> back when I was guiding and he was known as a smallmouth expert guru of the world. What most folks didn't know was Johnny Morris was a tournament fisherman in his early years and he was fishing a tournament. I believe it was on Table Rock, but I'm not sure about that. But it was one of those uh, western Missouri lakes. And uh, Billy Westmoreland had already got in, and the lake was really rough, you know, probably four or five-foot swells out there. And Billy was already in on the dock with his fish and happened to look out in the middle of the lake, way out as far as he could see, and he noticed that there was something wrong. He got back in his boat and headed out across the lake in rough waters with a life jacket on. And when he got out there, there was a young man in the water holding on to a metal six-gallon gas tank. His boat had overturned. He's holding on to this gas tank, got a life jacket on, and he's got his pen knife in his hand, Bill, and he's scratching, I love you, Mom and Dad. Goodbye. And it was Johnny Morse. Billy Westmoreland reached down and pulled Johnny Morris out of the water and saved his life. Now, not only did I hear that story from Billy Westmoreland, I heard it from Johnny Morris standing on my stage when we inducted Billy Westmoreland into the Hall of Fame. To get to hear a story like, I mean, can you imagine our world right now had God not sent Billy Westmoreland out on that rough lake and he had not pulled Billy, uh, Johnny Morris out of the water. Can you imagine our world today in the outdoors industry, how void of great things that it would have been had a man of Johnny Morris's statue and caliber not been allowed to flourish in his life uh, like he was allowed to do by God by sending Billy Westmoreland out there to save his life? What a story. It's an incredible story, and, you know, Billy Westmoreland, aside from, I, I read his books 
all the way through junior high because we had them in our library at yeah. school. Um, them old brown But fish. if I'm not mistaken, and you'll know this, Gary, but Billy is the reason that BASS outlawed uh, fly rods in tournaments back in the day. I believe that's correct, yeah. I believe that's correct. And Billy was also one that was promoting uh, catch and release because he didn't want to see one of those smallmouth go under the fillet knife. Now, don't get me wrong. I still like eating a bass, but Billy didn't want to see one of them old brown fish go under the knife. Those are awesome stories, Gary. I, NWF, uh, National Wildlife Federation, has given Johnny Morris an award for the conservation he's worked he's done as well. So he, he's definitely one that we need on this planet and has done a lot of great stuff. Howdy, listeners. For more great content, check out NWF Outdoors social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Connect with us. We want to hear from you. Send us your ideas for podcast guests and questions in the comments. And for even more excellent content, here's a message from our partner podcast. Hey, everyone. This is Marsha Brownlee from Artemis Sportswomen. We know you love awesome stories about hunting, fishing, and conservation. So head on over to the Artemis podcast. You'll meet adventurous, accomplished women who are redefining conservation through their lives in the field and on the water. Filled with humor, audacity, empathy, and intelligence, Artemis brings you new voices and introduces you to women from all walks of the sporting community. Find Artemis wherever you get your podcasts. Let's move over to your uh, your bass team work at the at Bethel. I mean, that's a that's a whole another ball of wax you got yourself into on its own right. We'd like to we'd like our listeners to understand about. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about what that is? Yeah, I will. I mean, uh, my daughter worked for Bethel uh, under the vice president at the time in two thousand and two, and I was helping uh, a young bunch of guys over at UT Martin. Uh, University of Tennessee at Martin, not far from my home, they had a bass club. And so they asked me if I would help them get some sponsors and some support and and if I'd be their outside advisor, and I agreed. And so I tried to help them as much as I could. Had great companies like Triton and Strike King and others that come on board to help those young men. Uh, and in 2002, my daughter called me and said, Dad, uh, the athletic director uh, would like to have a meeting with you. So I said, okay. I didn't know what it was about. I didn't know it was about bass fishing, but I didn't know what it was about. Uh, but the assistant athletic director had seen uh, bass fishing on TV. Bassmasters had started college bass fishing on their uh, on ESPN, I believe. And there was a couple other tournament trails out there. And so I went in and sat down with the athletic director and, and two of his assistant athletic directors. And we started talking about them putting together a bass team or a bass club at the time. And I said, well, you know, why don't you do something a little better than a bass club? Why don't you offer scholarships? Why don't you make this a true sport at our school or at your school and have it where the guys come in, they get a scholarship of some kind to come here and go to school. And I believe there'd be a lot of kids that would want to come here if you offered them uh, a small scholarship. They liked the idea real well. And uh, ironically, they asked me if I would be their coach. And I said, well, I've got a very good career in the outdoors industry. Uh, you know, I, I'm a professional hunting and fishing guide, and I'm doing a lot of other stuff that's, that's starting to make me a little bit of money, and I don't want to quit doing what I'm doing. And I'm working for tourism in the state of Tennessee and being able to promote all my lakes and, and hunting and fishing around my region. And they said, well, we don't want you to stop doing what you're doing. We want you to continue to do it, 
but just coach our team as well. And then he wrote a piece of, he wrote a, a figure on a sticky note and slid it over to me. And he said, that comes with full benefits and insurance, which was something I didn't have at the time. And I took a look at that note and I said, you know, I think I can do this. <laughs> uh, the figure on there was quite a bit more than what I was already making as a, as a professional hunting fishing guide. And Bethel has been great to me. We've won since 2000 and uh, nine, we've won over 12 national championship titles, including uh, my third young man will be fishing the Bassmasters Classic, representing all of college fishing this upcoming March in Greenville, uh, South Carolina. Tristan McCormick, uh, John Garrett, and Cody Huff has represented Bethel prior to this year. So I'm very proud of all the accolades that we've achieved there. As Bill said earlier in this podcast, we've been the number one team and, and recognized as one of the top programs in America for bass fishing. And uh, I've even I've even been uh, uh, told that I was the Nick Saban of bass fishing from time to time. And I, I, oh, man. I, I graciously say, no, he's the Gary Mason of college bass fishing. So <laughs> Nick makes a little more money than I do, I'm sure, though. <laughs> I would imagine so. I would imagine so. But, uh, you know, people that haven't kind of kept up with the growth of collegiate fishing, uh, when you turn it on now, you know, on the weekend, you're going to see, it seems like all the major colleges, especially in the South, but but from all over the country. And you know, how has that grown? Do you know off the top of your head how many programs there are now? And So there's over a thousand college uh, programs, either club sports or scholarship. I think there's close to 18 or 19 scholarship programs now, uh, uh, schools that's followed in our footsteps. As a matter of fact, some of them, uh, like Bryan College and Emmanuel uh, and others, I've helped them with their program and helped them get started. Uh, but there's over a thousand colleges out there that have you know, some form of bass fishing team and high school bass fishing, I'm proud to say, is one of the fastest growing high school sports in America. Uh, there's forever college that's got a team. There's probably two or 300 high schools that's got, got teams. And, and, uh, you know, it takes a huge amount of people to have a team in high school because you got to have boat captains for every, uh, boat that you've got on the water. The kids can't operate their own boat like we do in college. In college, we can operate our own boats, pull our own boats to the lakes and stuff. So, but it's a tremendous sport. And, you know, Bill, Here's the thing. Uh, I hear all the time, well, I wish they'd have had that in college when I was going to college. And uh, the really neat thing is only about 5 or 6% of the kids in high school get recruited from any college to play their particular sport, sport of choice, football, baseball, basketball, all of those great sports that we love. So what do you do with the other 94 95% of the kids that love to be competitive that played sports in high school but still want to be competitive in college? Uh, we've got shooting, we've got inline hockey, we've got bowling, and of course bass fishing, and and several other programs here at Bethel and other schools are picking up on that as well. Good friend of ours, Bub Edwards, is the shooting coach here and has been since 2009. Uh, and our programs here that are what we call club sports programs, even though they have scholarships attached to them, have done really well for our school and uh, really well for our recruiting. I love this, Gary. I, th this is like a, a whole new world to me. Like I, I didn't even know, you know, I, you don't want to tell my kid that you could go to school for fishing and hunting and shooting because he might be right over there pretty soon. <laughs> I didn't even know that existed. 
Well, I was just thinking about that. Yeah, I was thinking about that when you were talking about, you know, him grabbing a fly rod. I'm thinking, hmm, there's another potential recruit right there. You know, so I'm always recruiting. Yeah, he can't get enough. He's got to be passionate about his, <laughs> about his grades. He's got to be passionate about his grades too, though. Uh, tell, him, tell him to keep up. Oh, he is. That's the awesome thing about him. He's a he's an excellent student, always straight A student, and and works hard. And he doesn't mind hard work, which I think that's that's pretty cool. Uh, you know, you never know these days. There's a lot of there's a lot of things that can pull you away from from working hard. But uh, he's a good kid. I, I I'm gonna tell him about this. He'll probably be pretty intrigued. <laughs> well, let's jump over to the the Tennessee tourism stuff, the Northwest Tennessee tourism stuff you're doing too, Gary. We we want to give you a chance to talk about that. I'm Absolutely. I'm curious about that. Absolutely. Can can you give us an idea? Is this like a hunter angler type of tourism thing? I, I want to understand that better. Well, yeah. In 2006, I started Northwest Tennessee. I started as the director of Northwest Tennessee Tourism, and and uh, the a couple of gentlemen that come before me was Tommy Aiken and uh, Jim Perry, and uh, both of them had done great jobs and had had the position for a long time. But I just wanted to promote my region and my area and all the things that we had going on, including hunting and fishing. Uh, there was a lot of other stuff going on as well, and our area has grown. Uh, I retired from that position in 2000 and and uh, 21 in June of this year, uh, but still promote, uh, you know, all walks of, of tourism in our region, in our state. And I've always considered myself an ambassador to the state of Tennessee whenever I was somewhere else, either doing fishing seminars or, or duck and goose calling seminars or whatever I was doing. But uh, we've got so much wonderful things to do here. And here's the neat part of it is we don't have the expense uh, of hunting and fishing like people do from other states. I mean, I know sometimes we fuss about the high cost of our licenses or or this, that, and other, but I'm telling you, I've been to other states. I've been to other places, and Tennessee really gives their outdoor sportsmen uh, a great bang for their bucks when you go to buy a license. Gary, um, Northwest Tennessee, of course, is, I mean, a big outdoor community, and we get a, a ton of people coming in for tournaments and different hunting experiences and, and just to come in and fish, uh, crappie bass and, and what have you. How does hunter and angler tourism affect the region, Northwest Tennessee? Well, it's, it's huge. It has a big effect. Uh, you know, Northwest Tennessee tourism's region is from the Tennessee River in Henry and Benton counties to the Mississippi River in O'Bine County and Lake County, and it covers all the way from almost to Jackson, Tennessee, all the way north to the Kentucky state line. So it's a huge nine-county region, and each one of these counties have hunting and fishing. I mean, uh, a lot of outdoor sportsmen live here. A lot of others want to come here. And then we also have just to the east and north of us, Land Between the Lakes, which is, you know, one of the largest recreational areas in in the nation. Uh, We've got the Tennessee River. And, and Mississippi River and beautiful Real Foot Lake, which we'll talk about a little bit more uh, here in just a few minutes. But uh, there is, there's no place that I know of that has any more to offer an outdoor sportsman than northwest Tennessee and this region. Whether you like to deer hunt, duck hunt, goose hunt, or fish, uh, squirrel hunt, rabbit hunt, quail hunt, whatever it might be, it's all right here for you in northwest Tennessee. 
I, I was curious because, you know, I hear you talk about tourism and where I live in Colorado, we have so many tourists and, you know, it's starting to impact some of our, some of our natural areas, you know, the hunters this year, man, I, I think hunting's up something like 20% for big game, you know, seeing more guys in the woods than, than we ever have, you know, talk about that nexus a little, like how are you guys balancing bringing those people at the same time, taking care of those resources. So, you know, all the hunting and fishing remains good for folks. Well, of course, you know, Bill touched on bass tournaments a while ago, and we do have a tremendous amount of bass tournaments on Kentucky Lake, uh, up and down the lake, all the way from uh, uh, Grand Rivers, Kentucky, all the way down to Pickwick Dam. Somewhere every weekend there's a big tournament going on on Kentucky Lake. Now the lake's 126 miles long, 128 miles long, and in most places over a mile wide. So it's a huge waterway, but you can affect the resource. You know, if you're not uh, a good uh, promoter of, of put and take, uh, the bass fishing resource especially can be hurt if you have tournaments uh, the wrong time of the year. Uh, none of us likes to see uh, a bass uh, that's been uh, in a tournament uh, uh, go under the knife. Although, as I said earlier, I, I enjoy eating bass and, uh, you know, we'll go out and catch uh, a limit myself sometimes and and uh, and bring them to the fryer but when it comes to a tournament most all bass fishermen uh, that tournament fish are great conservationists as well and they know how to keep these fish alive take good care of them and then we have a restocking program here now in uh, some of the counties in northwest tennessee henry county and benton county especially is restocking uh each year over three hundred thousand florida strain uh hatchlings or fangerlings that are about an inch and a half long to help the resource. So uh, we're putting back as much as we're taking, maybe more, and trying to keep that resource alive for future generations. And I think uh, the economic impact that, that tournaments have and that tourism has for this region is huge. It helps create jobs. You know, you see uh, service stations and boat dealerships and hotels and stuff like that popping up all over the region. Uh, and they're, they're catering to the outdoors person as much as they are to anyone. So, uh, we're glad to see all that happening. Uh, I'm just a very, very small part of that. There's, uh, a lot bigger players than I am, but, uh, I was part, I was a part of it for 16 and a half years and glad to do it and, uh, think that I've done my job well. I, being from this part of the country, I'd say so. Uh, and, and you've done it in the face of, of some pretty serious challenges on the landscape, um, especially for the fishing resources, but even to some extent, uh, waterfowl resources with some of the new species that we're, we're seeing. Um, can you talk about some of the, the challenges, both in, w with your job you know, as tourism, but also just moving forward as an outdoorsman from this part of the country, but some of the landscape challenges we have now? Yeah, you know, I guess probably one of the biggest challenges that, that we had as far as tournaments goes is, uh, you know, as locals, we all are kind of stingy with our resources. You know, we, we hate to see someone else go out and catch a fish or shoot a duck that we might have been able to catch or shoot uh, or a turkey or whatever. You know, turkey hunting has become big here over the past 20 years. But, uh, you know, promoting the economic 
values of the things we were doing here, I think was one of the biggest challenges to, to the local people. One thing that we had happened though, is we had several county mayors and, and uh, people in our communities that really got on board from the get go uh, to help promote the idea of that. This is a whole new resource force. This guy that's going to come in, spend four or five days here, buy gas, eat at our restaurants and go fish on our lake. Or the guy that's going to come in for two or three days and go hunt public ground uh, for, for wild turkeys. And, all those folks are spending money and they're helping, helping us with our economic value. Uh, and so we're trading a little bit of a resource for a huge amount of economic value. And so personifying that to local people was something that was really a challenge at first and, and then got better and better. And now, uh, you know, I, I hear a few grumblings from some of the local guys at the bait and tackle shop, but it's all good. You know, we try to keep it all in perspective. Um, then the other thing that we had happen that really become a challenge for all of us as outdoorsmen, and and I want to lead into this is is uh, we started man has been allowed to uh, do things that wasn't real bright, in my opinion. We've been allowed to bring uh, invasive species of other animals into our region. You know, years ago we started seeing coyotes come across the Mississippi river. Now, mankind, I don't think brought them in, but, but they come and they, they changed their habitat and started moving into Mississippi and, and Tennessee and Kentucky. And now even further East. Uh, and then we started seeing armadillos move in. And now we've got a lot of armadillos, we, you know, never would have seen an armadillo here in 1991 or 1992. Uh, I remember calling the wildlife officer, the first one I had got run over in front of my house. And I said, there's a dead armadillo laying in my front of my house. He said, he said, where'd it come from? I said, well, I guess it come from a mama armadillo. That's all I know. But he come over and scooped it up and put it in a sack, you know, and, and took it off with him. He was as amazed as I was. But, but when we start talking about evasive species, you know, things like uh, Asian carp and big head carp and that were allowed to be put in ponds over in Arkansas or wherever they was put by, by people to help keep down with the algae and stuff in their menopons or catfish ponds. And then the floods came and, and, uh, and those fish got out and got in the Mississippi River. We already knew, uh, our scientists knew, that they were very aggressive when it comes to spawning. They, these fish spawn two or three times a year, and they have, you know, thousands if not more fry each year. And they, have, they grow so fast that they really have no natural predators. Uh, once they get so big that a bass won't eat them, uh, they, they don't have any natural predators. And so these things started taking over places like the Illinois River and, and other waterways and really causing not only devastation to all the other species of native fishies, fish that lived in those places, but they all started, also started causing devastation to tourism, devastation to the waterway and the fact that, you know, these fit things jump four or five foot high when they hear a loud noise. They could knock you out of a boat if you was running a sea dew or a boat or something like that if you hit it hit got hit by one and so uh, we've really been lax in taking a good hard look at whether or not to let these things be placed in an area or a place where there's just a slight chance that they might get out i think about all the uh the snakes in the everglades now 
you know, they're starting to cause a huge problem. You know, they're the boa constrictors and, and these huge snakes eat baby alligators, you know. And so, uh, of course, alligators eat them, too. But uh, but it's going to be a real fight and a real struggle on the Everglades uh, because you're never going to get rid of these things. Uh, never going to get rid of the carp. Uh, another thing that uh, is really a pet peeve of mine, and mankind didn't bring them in here, but uh, they're allowing them to flourish, uh, our, our government is, and that's Comorons. Real Foot Lake, I said I was going to talk about it, is one of the most pristine, beautiful places that I've ever been in America. And I've been a lot of beautiful places, from the Black Hills to the Badlands, flown over the Grand Canyon, several times. I mean, I've seen a lot of beautiful places. Real Foot Lake ranks right up in the top five of the most beautiful places I've ever seen. For those that don't know, Real Foot Lake was uh, formed in 1811 and 1812 by God himself by causing an earthquake that formed a huge depression, caused the Mississippi River to run backwards for three, three and a half days and fill in the void. And huge two and three hundred year old cypress trees at the time fell in Real Foot Lake. All along the edges of Real Foot Lake, what's now Real Foot Lake, is three and four hundred year old cypress trees. So now in comes an influx of comorants. Comorants eat fish and they eat a lot of them, but that's not the main point. What they do is they sit in trees and roost at night, and their their poop uh, is very acidy, and it devastates the foliage on these trees. So then the tree can't complete the photosynthesis thing that it does to to breathe and to live and the trees start dying so now you got four and five hundred year old trees all around real foot lake that's starting to die because the comorants are are ganging up in there and roosting and no one will allow anyone to uh, take care of these comorants that's causing the problem because they're protected species uh, so my pet peeve right now is promoting that we need to be taking care of our lakes and our streams through uh, conservation efforts to control these evasive species. We're never going to get rid of them. We know we're not going to get rid of the carp. We're not going to get rid of, uh, of comorants. We're not going to get rid of boa constrictors. But we can do things, and we are doing things. The uh, states and federal government is providing ways for our commercial fishermen to harvest uh, the carp. And our commercial fishermen have been the real true heroes, I think, of this carp thing because they are harvesting thousands of pounds a day out of our waterways and our lakes. But we need to take it a step further. We need to do everything we can to stop the devastation of our, our beautiful scenic uh, trees and shorelines by these invasive birds and other species of, of animals that really don't belong uh, in Tennessee or in other states, you know, even Colorado. You know, uh, if I come over and I started turning loose or allowing uh, something to come into Colorado that devastated the elk herd or uh, brought chronic wasting disease into your deer herd or something, we have to take care of that stuff. God put us on this planet to take care of our planet and our animals, and he put us in charge of that. I don't think we're doing a really good job yet uh, with some of those species. Some of them we are, but some of them we're not. And uh, and I want to promote for the rest of my life uh, somehow making sure that we leave a better world for our children and grandchildren than what we found uh, from our grandfathers and grandparents. Well, it's probably worth pointing out that uh, 
there are parts of Canada and the U.S. where in Canada, you can actually buy a license and go hunt cormorants. And, and I believe some parts right. of the U.S. are getting to that point. Um, you know, it's not a matter of needing to annihilate the birds, but they are way past what historically would have been carrying capacity. And then at Real Foot, it is a, an iconic uh, bald eagle wintering area. Uh, I mean, when I was a kid in the you know early 70s and there were no bald eagles, seemingly, there were always eagles at Real Foot. And in the wintertime, there would be tons of them. And now it's incredible to be up there and see them. And as these cypress trees go, uh, if we don't take care of them, we will have an issue there. Yeah, you're exactly right, Bill. And, you know, uh, I'm not for annihilating anything. I mean, I, I, I hate mice, especially ones that get in my office. I'll put out poison to try to take care of them. But that mouse that's out there in the field, he don't bother me any. Uh, as long as he stays out there in the field and does his thing, I'm okay. But uh, but it's just the ones that are devastating properties and, and uh, you know, doing damage and harm to the ecosystem, uh, whether it's in the water or, or on the land, that we need to be better stewards of than what we're doing right now. And I'm not certainly not taking away from any programs or anything that, that one person or the whole nation is doing to help uh, in these battles. Uh, don't want to take away from anything anyone's doing. I just want to uh, help make sure that we're all doing what we can do uh, each and every day to leave a better world for our children. Let's talk about that a little as far as doing doing it better because, you know, NWF has a has a campaign to, to work against invasive carp as well. Bill's helped out some on that. Our Great Lakes office has taken largely the lead there, you know, the infiltration in the Great Lakes, Mississippi River Basin. It's It's a big deal. What kind of solutions, what kind of things are you seeing in your neck of the woods, Gary, that that we can do or that average sportsmen and women, they should be thinking about to help out with that problem? Well, of course, like I said, the commercial fishermen are the real heroes here as far as on the Tennessee River and Kentucky Lake uh, because of the amount of carp that they're harvesting each and every day. You know, subsidizing that catch for that commercial fisherman, keeping him uh, in monies that uh, he can feed his family and do his business with because uh, catching carp uh, takes a huge toll on their equipment. Uh, you're talking about, you know, harvesting a, a thousand pounds, two thousand pounds a day, rather than maybe you know five, six hundred pounds of catfish, which uh, and drum and stuff that the fishermen used to go after. So, uh, continuing to vote monies in uh, from our federal government to help subsidize uh, those uh, fishermen that are out there trying to make a living uh, for the carp situation. Uh, as far as for the Comorant situation and other evasive species, you know, I think we have to, uh, our, our biggest asset is our sportsmen. Uh, whether it's waterfowl hunters or fishermen or uh, whoever, our biggest asset, we've got an army waiting out there that would go uh, harvest some of these Comorants uh, and, and maybe other evasive species that have moved into this area if allowed to do so under limits and guidelines uh, because we don't want to annihilate anything. We don't want to take anything completely out there here. We have to live side by side with them, but we can control them. Uh, so let's make seasons, let's pass laws that allow uh, our sportsmen to harvest these evasive species and, and uh, you know, let's work hard to keep them in check 
where we don't have a devastating effect to our ecosystem in any of these pristine reservoirs, and uh, and we don't have a devastating effect uh, to the area sportsmen that and and residents that live in and around these places. So that's that's one of the things I'd like to promote is, is let's allow harvesting of these invasive species and let's set limits, let's set guidelines, and uh, and let our army of outdoorsmen help take care of them and keep them in check. Follow the science, in other words. Follow the science, that's right. Awesome, well, thanks for that, Gary. I know we're coming up here, we've been talking for an hour, believe it or not, uh, and we've been enjoying your, your stories and all the different things you're working on. I know we got to get rolling here, but I, I want to give uh, – both you and Bill a chance to, to send us off with any wise words. And now that I know Bill is, is so famous, cause I, I, I don't think I was aware of that before, but man, I, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to take heed to his words, maybe a little stronger from now on. <laughs> well, uh, since, since you've, uh, allowed me to be on this show, uh, can I take just a moment and make an announcement? Sure. Go ahead. Yes. Uh, I want to announce that in 2022, uh, a good friend of mine, Mr. Bill Cooksey, will be inducted into the Legends of the Outdoors National Hall of Fame. Congratulations. Oh, my gosh. That's a hell of an announcement on this. Thank you. Well, I, I've waited long enough to do this, and uh, I wanted to tell him when we were at Real Foot Lake together, but the time just didn't uh, arise uh, itself where I felt like that it would be better to do it now on the podcast. Tell him how much I love him and I appreciate him. Tell him congratulations. I can't think of anyone that I'd rather stand on that stage with than my friend Bill Cooksey. And I look forward to having him and his whole family at the Hall of Fame in 2022 at at the Bass Pro Shops in Springfield, Missouri. Wow. Um, Aaron, you won't believe this. I had absolutely zero clue. and I do believe it. I can tell by the look on um, your face. Because I know – so many of the people who were in that hall of fame and man, I, I'm honestly right now I'm speechless and that's not real common for me. Well, Bill, proud of you, man. That's awesome. I love that uh, Gary decided to share that with us on this too. That's a, that's a special moment. And uh, Gary, I've been getting to know Bill more and more all the time and I'm, I'm in constant awe of all he knows and, and all his, intellect on everything sporting and so uh i can't wait to see that myself maybe i'll even make it out there and and get to join those those ceremonies that'd be pretty cool oh i hope that you can i just uh thank you well you know bill and i have been we've known each other for a long long time i've watched his career i've watched what he's done i've watched i've watched who he is and i'm telling you this guy to me, is what personifies a true outdoor legend. And uh, he's he's one of my heroes, and I can't wait, like I said, to stand on that stage with him. I'm probably going to tear up, you know, when we're up there together uh, because we're that close. But uh, uh, like I said, I can't think of anyone that I would rather stand on the stage with than Bill Cooksey. And uh, I, I can't wait. I couldn't wait to tell him today. I mean, I've just been sitting here on the edge of my seat. Oh, okay, when do I tell him? When do I tell him? So now the cat's out of the bag. I'll also tell you this. You'll be going in with Larry Ray, Billy Cooksey, I mean, Billy Blakely, uh, and, and I, some other really great guys that you know. So 
we're going to have a big time uh, August the 20th at, at uh, Springfield, Missouri. And I'll be sending your letter of induction uh, to you. So be sure and text me your address where you like that sent, Bill, and, uh, and then we'll get you all the information. I, I'm just uh, thankful and honored. I mean, Gary, I, I was actually going to end this saying, hey, I got those cups a couple of weeks ago that your grandkids needed. So, <laughs> so I need an address, too. <laughs> okay. All right. Great. Great. Well, I know we'll be in touch. We've got uh, we've got a lot more stuff to do. Our careers are nowhere near over with. Aaron, I appreciate you all having me. And uh, I do uh, look forward to the day that I get to meet your young son and, and hopefully what we'll align with him. Yes, sir, Gary. I would appreciate that very much. I think it'd be fun to get together and uh, do some fishing. And I thank you so very much for coming on here and, and sharing this big announcement with us. That was really cool. I'm glad I got to be part of that. And uh, congrats to Bill. And let's look forward to seeing one another, all of us, uh, sometime in the future. I'll see Bill here real soon. Happy trails, <laughs> gentlemen. Take care. Well, great, guys. Listen, y'all have a great rest of the day. And if either one of you need anything, please reach out. Thank you, Gary. We are NWF Outdoors. to go like just full-blown redneck on these fish. This is like high-tech cane pole fishing right here. From the white sandy beaches to the crystal blue waters, enjoy the best fishing Panama City Beach has to offer during Chasing the Sun, Sundays at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.